0: Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you on this beautiful morning. I know there's other places you could be. You could be sleeping in. You could be enjoying brunch. You could be getting a head start on yard work. But you know what? God hasn't asked us to prioritize any of those activities the way that He's asked us to prioritize corporate worship. And so, we're glad you're here. Not because we think our preaching is anything special or Because we think the worship team is anything special, to be sure, we're we're certainly blessed by the skilled musicians who lead us in worship, but that's not why we come here. We come here because God asked us to. He tells us in Hebrews 10.25, not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And so we're glad you're here because when we come and we obey the Lord, we find ourselves to be the recipients of His enabling grace. You see, we can't go to God and say, Lord, help me with my work help me with my relationships, help me with my attitude, help me with my hurt, and then disconnect ourselves from one of the primary ways He wants to provide His help, and that's the church. And so it's good that we're here to worship the Lord together and to avail ourselves to the work of His Spirit. If this is your first Sunday with us, I should mention that our lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, is away in Chattanooga visiting his grandson Jackson, and I suppose David might also see his daughter and son-in-law if they happen to be in the same room as his grandson. He's pretty excited about that little guy, and we're glad that he gets to experience that blessing described in Psalm 128 of enjoying your children's children. What's still amusing to me, however, is that David has foregone that traditional title of grandfather or granddad, and has opted instead to be called, I promise I'm not making this up, (laughs) G-Daddy. I I, I think he might have shared that before, but that is just too good not to repeat. And so when we see G-Daddy later on tonight at the prayer and praise service or next Sunday, you'll just have to let him know that he was missed, well, has already been mentioned we're studying the Apostles' Creed this fall as a church, and hopefully this has been an enriching and educational study for you. I know that's been the case for our children. They certainly did a great job this morning, but had you walked across the hall into Kids Rock and the not-too-distant past, you would have noted a few variations from what we recited this morning. At first, several of our children thought we were getting into the Apostles' Creed, and I'm sure they were more than sad when they discovered Miss Marie wasn't giving them a new flavor of ice cream from Dario. You would have also overheard that Jesus was congealed by the Holy Spirit, and that he was born of a version of Mary, and and this is my favorite, that he suffered under that dread buccaneer Pontius Pirate. So... I don't know, maybe Pontius was a salty swashbuckler. Yeah, we we can get a chuckle out of that, but the fact remains that the creed contains some words and ideas that can be confusing for all of us, but this ancient and universally embraced summary of the Christian faith is worth studying, and today we've reached the final lines in the creed which speak to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And this is a topic that should be of interest to all of us. Our own mortality is one of the most empirically verifiable realities we have. There's thousands of years of data to back this up. But most of us don't give much thought to it until we're confronted with our own mortality through uh, a diagnosis or the passing of a loved one. And I suspect the primary culprit for this is just simply the, the busyness of life, and the cares of this world, but the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, said that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And he went on to say that, that death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. In other words, we would do well to ponder the fact that our days are numbered, and then to give thought to what comes next. And this morning, I'd like to provide space For us to do that. For us to give thought to what will happen next. For us to turn our attention to what another ancient creed, the Nicene Creed, refers to as the life to come. And I'd like us to wade into this topic this morning just by way of a simple question. When you hear the words, life everlasting, what comes to mind? I know there was a time in my own life when the answer to that question was, not much. Maybe some harps or some halos, some angel wings, a mansion in the sky. I I didn't know what everlasting life entailed, but I figured it had to be better than the alternative. And this conclusion was formed in part due to the ministry of that modern day prophet, Gary Larson, and his Farside comics. I don't know if you can read that in the back, but there's some folks milling around hell, and one of the new arrivals comments, oh man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything. (laughs) And as a kid, I I didn't know that much about life everlasting, but it sure sounded better than the other option. And so from this very early age, I I knew that I, I didn't want the other option. But when I attempted to think about the alternative about life everlasting. I can't say that I got excited the same way I did had you told me that I was going to go to amusement park or I was going to go camping with my friends. Can anybody relate? You know what I'm talking about? You've you've been on this journey before? For many years, life everlasting was just synonymous with entry into a never-ending church service in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever. And I should mention that I like church. I changed careers so I could spend more time at church. But, but forget about eternity. Just the thought of spending a, a few hundred years in a nonstop worship service did seem a little boring. And I wondered if I was going to feel a little bit like this guy who finds himself in heaven and is thinking, I wish I'd brought a magazine. And maybe that's you too. You can't help but wonder what's so special about life everlasting, other than the fact that it's probably going to be better than the alternative? And in the time we have remaining, I'd like to answer that question. First of all, the reason that we as Christians, the reason Christians everywhere across all cultures, across all languages, across all centuries, affirm a belief in life everlasting is because this is what the Bible clearly teaches. Perhaps the most well-known verse that speaks to this, is John 3.16. And let's just, let's just read it together in a version that most of us probably heard growing up, the King James Version. Will you help me out with this? It says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So there's the promise for everlasting life, or, or life everlasting, And if you're following along in your Bible, you you might have a version that uses the word eternal rather than everlasting. Some of the more modern translations like the ESV and the NIV, they use the word eternal. And here's what you need to know. Both eternal and everlasting are translations of the same Greek word. So whatever their, their connotation might be in English, we know in the Greek they mean exactly the same thing. And here's what's really interesting. If we were to go and we were to recite the Apostles' Creed in the Greek, those last two words that we translate, life everlasting, would be the same were we to read John 3.16 in the Greek. So they're the same. So, so we know that life everlasting and eternal life, the, the, whatever they might mean, which we'll get to that, but we know they're going to mean the same thing. And so over the course of the message I'm going to try to say life everlasting, but should I slip in an eternal life or two? You know that I'm not introducing a new idea. And, and it shouldn't surprise us that the creed, being an ancient document, would have language that would be more aligned with an older translation like the King James. So now we, we, could, we could easily go and we could look at another 20 verses, easily, that all extend the same promise of everlasting life. But I think our time is going to be best spent seeking to understand what everlasting life is and why it's awesome, why it's going to be exciting. So, so what is life everlasting? Well, well, John 3.16 is clear that life everlasting isn't something that, that, we, that we have on our own. We're not born with it. It's not innate to us. We don't naturally possess it. It's something that we have to receive. We must receive it by believing in Jesus and it's our belief that turns the key and unlocks the door, allowing us to receive the gift. The Bible also teaches us that those who believe in Jesus have everlasting life the moment that they trust in Jesus. In John five twenty four, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So, Jesus doesn't say whoever believes will have eternal life or might have eternal life. He says that person has eternal life. Life everlasting is something that you have right now if you have placed your trust in Jesus. But it's also biblical to realize that there's a future aspect to life everlasting. This is why Jesus would say in John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So those of us who possess eternal life now are looking forward to a time when Jesus will raise us up into the fullness of that life. We're awaiting the full realization of God's promise, which will occur on that last day. And it's this future aspect of life everlasting that I believe the creed is emphasizing because it comes on the heels of our affirmation of the resurrection of the body. And as we think about what it's going to be like to experience life everlasting at a future point in time, it would be correct to assume that this is a life that goes on forever. It's certainly a life without end In John chapter 11, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But but here's the thing, life without end is only part of the promise. Life everlasting also speaks to to a certain type of life or a, a certain quality of life. In John 1 verse 4, we learn that everlasting life is in Jesus. John writes, in Him was life, and that life was the light of all men. Jesus later would refer to Himself as the bread of life, and later in John 11, He would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, while Life everlasting isn't something that we naturally possess. It's not intrinsic to us. It's not innate to us. It is, on the other hand, innate to Jesus. Jesus has eternal life. He is eternal life. Eternal life is something that is is, is just, it's natural to God's essence. It's who He is. And because of His great love for us, God has decided to share His life with us. When we're united to Christ, we're invited to partake in the very life of God. And this is why Jesus would pray in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word know there doesn't speak about uh, intellectual knowledge, but rather intimate relationship, fellowship. So what happens is is that life everlasting is really the fullness of God's life becoming available to us when we place our trust in Jesus. When we receive eternal life, it's a, it's a, it, what happens is we get to share in that life that emanates from, from the all-satisfying fellowship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus We're like branches growing from a vine in the same way that that nutrients and life-giving matter just naturally flows from the vine into the branches producing life. Something very similar happens to us. When we're united to Christ, what happens is the life of Christ comes flowing into us, sustaining us, giving us life, refreshing us, causing us to grow. And so uh, eternal life means not only that we're going to live forever because Jesus is eternal, but also that we're going to experience the fullness of His life. When God offers us everlasting life, He's just not only offering us a life that isn't ever going to end, that that continues forever, but also participation in His abundant life, the, the life that springs forth from His very essence. And hopefully this helps shed some light on what everlasting life is and, and, and how one gets it, but I realize it, it, it doesn't help us understand what we're going to be doing for all eternity. And that, that really is the exciting part. Unfortunately, when many people think of life everlasting, I think they think about going up to heaven to live forever with God somewhere up in the clouds in a disembodied state. I was driving around on Friday night and doing a little channel surfing with the radio, and an old song from a couple decades back came on that would seem to kind of smuggle in this idea. I don't know how many of you remember this song. Checked out the date, came out in 1969, but we hear it still on the radio today, and he sings, I'm going up to the spirit in the sky, that's where I'm going to go when I die, Um, and he also refers to it as the place that's the best. And, and I like the song. If you've heard it before, you know that it's really catchy. In fact, I've kind of had it in my head all weekend. But the, the, the small problem I have with it is, is just uh, I, I feel like the, the lyrics aren't really true to what's getting revealed in the Bible because the Bible teaches us that we're to look forward to spending eternity on a new earth with a fully resurrected body, not hanging out up in the sky, up in the clouds. You, you see, our ultimate destiny is, is not going to be strumming harps on the clouds in a ghost-like state. Jesus' bodily, physical resurrection guarantees that we too will experience a bodily, physical resurrection. When we die, Scripture indicates that we will temporarily experience this intermediate heaven where we'll be absent from the body but present with the Lord. But that's not where we're going to spend eternity. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us that we're to look forward to a bodily, physical resurrection. The Apostle Paul writes this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So that word firstfruits there, that's an agricultural metaphor. The fact that there's firstfruits implies that there's going to be more to follow that there's going to be second fruits and third fruits. So that very first Easter is a foreshadowing of what's to come. On that very first Easter, Jesus experienced a bodily, physical resurrection. He would appear to his disciples and he would say, look at me, look at my hands and my feet, touch me, see that I'm not a ghost. And in the same way, we too, at the last day, will receive a resurrected body that in some way will be in continuity with our current body. We'll be able to say, look at me. See see my hands and see my feet? See that it's me? I'm not a ghost. This is what we have to look forward to. And and while our, our physical body might temporarily be separated from our soul at death, eventually our body and our soul will be reunited again when we receive our resurrected bodies. And the Bible teaches us that we'll live on a renewed earth with our renewed bodies. One of the great misconceptions about the Christian faith is that when that last day comes, the world's just going to be destroyed, it's going to be vaporized, and we're all going to go up into the clouds to spend eternity with God in heaven at a great big sing-along in the sky forever and ever. And I love singing as much as the next guy, but... I don't know if anyone would say, yeah, I want to do that for all of eternity. Am I right? I see some some north-south there. And and, and what I have to tell you is is the good news is that this vision of heaven seems to be contrary, or at least incomplete, when we compare it to what's revealed in the Scriptures. The Bible speaks of a renewed earth, a physical, tangible place that's fully restored, a redeemed earth, cosmos where the Messiah will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. In Matthew 19, Jesus tells his disciples, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus doesn't say at the destruction of all things. He doesn't tell his disciples to look forward to the Annihilation of all things, he says, at the what? At the renewal of all things. Another translation says, at the regeneration of all things. The Apostle Peter also leads us to conclude that we should expect a renewal. In Acts 3, he's preaching to a crowd and he says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for, what's that word? Restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter tells us that heaven must receive Jesus for a time. Following his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. But that arrangement isn't permanent. It's temporary because there will come a time when Jesus will restore everything that has been subjected to, to futility because of sin. So, instead of thinking uh, of heaven as our eternal destination, perhaps it would be more biblical to speak about the new heavens and a new earth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells his readers, But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This language should also remind us of what the Apostle John writes in the book of Revelation. In his vision of what is to come, John says this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now for those of you who really love the beach, this isn't saying that there's not going to be the beach in heaven. I can't make you any promises. But, but I can tell you that sea here, it, in, in this context, isn't referring to a body of water, but rather to chaos and rebellion. And so there's not going to be any more chaos and rebellion the seas no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we're told that there will be a joining together of heaven and the renewed earth. Ephesians 1.10 says that God's plan is to bring all things in heaven And on earth together under one head, even Christ. So rather than going up to be with God in the sky, it would seem that God's going to come down to live where we live with us. And this means that the ultimate heaven that we're looking forward to is is not up in the clouds, but our ultimate destiny is, is a renewed creation. The very goodness of the original creation will be restored and redeemed to perfection. Thinking about this is mind-blowing. If you've ever driven the Blue Ridge Parkway in October and just looked at the kaleidoscope of colors, or if you've ever seen yellow aspens silhouetted by snow-capped Rockies, or if you ever stood at the, at the beach and watched the sun come and peek up over the horizon and paint the sky and the waves with a vibrant shade of red and orange. You know, this, this, this earth is Beautiful. Its, its beauty is is is, is jaw dropping and inspiring and breathtaking at times. But you know what? Its beauty is small. Compared to the beauty and the excitement that awaits us in the renewed earth, on the renewed cosmos. If you've ever gone to to turn off your computer, you know how this works. You take your mouse and. You move it over to the bottom left-hand corner of the screen, and you click for that shutdown button. But you know that when you scroll over that shutdown button, you've got two options, right? You can shut down, or you can shut down and restart. I think for a lot of people, when they think about what it's going to be like on that last day, they think God's going to click the shutdown button, that just everything is going to get powered down, everything gets disconnected, everything gets unplugged, game over, but in actuality, it's going to be shut down and restart. And when it boots back up, there's, there's going to be upgrades with, with uh, all new operating systems and, and, and unbelievable upgrades. God will have run the patch that deals with the virus of sin that brings about death and decay. That's what we have to look forward to. And on the new earth, we're going to experience the full and never-ending enjoyment of the life that we've always longed for. We'll do exactly what God originally created us to do, to glorify Him by cultivating the earth and ruling over creation in a way that testifies to God's goodness. We're going to be His image bearers as we were originally created to be. We know in Genesis 1 that God created us to cultivate the earth, to, to, to care for it, to develop it. So we should anticipate that there's going to be opportunity to work on the new earth. But our work is going to be void of the thorns and the thistles and the sweat of the brow that that characterize work on this world. We know that we'll eat and drink. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 26, he says, I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Luke 16.9 would seem to indicate that we're going to have friends in eternity. Revelation tells us that there's going to be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. I think we can assume that there's going to be culture, that there's going to be arts, there's going to be music. Isaiah tells us that there will be perfect peace. We know that there'll be no tears, no suffering, no pain, no death. And we can expect that there's going to be opportunity for, for fellowship and growth. Because God Himself is infinite, we're never going to be able to exhaust our knowledge of His glory. We can anticipate that we're always going to be discovering something new about the incomparable riches of His grace. There's always going to be something new to learn. Revelation 22 tells us that the the tree of life that Adam and Eve were once banned from will once again satisfy humanity. And that means we'll never pass our peak. there will never be bad backs and bum knees and, and achy joints and torn rotator cuffs. There's never going to be a need for contacts and high blood pressure medicine and adult diapers. It's going to be fantastic. We're always going to be at our peak. This is what we have to look forward to. And, 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 and here's the best part. Jesus... The great prince of peace is going to rule over the kingdom. And and here's what's really mind-blowing. Here's what's just staggering to think about, that we're going to reign with him. One passage says that we're going to judge angels. Like, who are we to do this? Just think about how he's lavished his love on us to allow us to participate with him in this experience Life everlasting is going to be exciting. There's going to be places to go and people to see and things to do. And I hope these verses have helped whet your appetite for what God has prepared for those who love Him. I I hope it helps you uh, do what a Switchfoot song says. I don't know how many of you like John Foreman, but uh, the song This is Home, it says uh, that we're to set our hearts on what happens next. And I hope if, if someone were to ask you, well, you know, what comes to mind when you think about life everlasting? You wouldn't say not much. You'd be able to say, well, hold on. Let me tell you. Let me show you some verses. It's going to be awesome. As a way of closing, I just, I want to, I want to leave us with a personal application. First, I want to address those of us who are believers. You know, we should appreciate this world because he, it maintains a goodness that's redeemable. But our eager expectation should be for the world to come. This world is not our home, but the one to come is. And as a result, that should motivate us not to live for this world, but for the one to come. If you heard about an upcoming event that you knew was, was going to be awesome, like Say say your favorite restaurant is doing some kind of appreciation event and you know there's going to be great food there, maybe great music, great venue, great weather, just great experience all around. Wouldn't you want to tell your closest friends about this? Wouldn't you want to invite some friends to come and experience it with you? And it should be the same way for us when we think about life everlasting. It should motivate us in that same way. And, and, and God has empowered us. He's asked us to go... And to extend the invitation. And, and, and we don't have to worry about any kind of maximum capacity or, or, or seating limit at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, Jesus also tells us that we can prepare for this next world. We can plan ahead. One time in Matthew 6, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven in the words of randy alcorn we can't take it with us when we die but we can send it on ahead so there's just a couple ways we, we we set our heart on what happens next and we live in light of the reality of what's to come the life ahead now I know there, there's some of you here who you've yet to believe in jesus you've yet to come to a place where you'd say yes i i, I trust in him You've yet to acknowledge your need for a Savior and to embrace His death in your place and ask Him to impart His perfect righteousness to you, to clothe you in His righteousness. And if that's you, God wants you to know that the reason the last day hasn't come isn't because He's just lost track of time or He's completely forgot about it or it's not going to happen. God says the reason is not that He's slow in coming, it's that He's patient towards us and that he doesn't want any to perish, and he wants everyone to reach repentance. And today, you can reach repentance. Today, you can have life everlasting. And John 3.16, it's very clear about how this happens. It's whoever will believe in Jesus, that's the person that will not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you've never done that before, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for what you would prepare for those of us who love you. You're good. And we thank you for just the little glimpse of what we have to look forward to. And I pray that as a result of us thinking about these things that your spirit would do a work in our hearts. And we would be enabled to live for what you've prepared in this next world more than this world. God, I pray also for those who are here who have yet to receive the offer that you extend. And if that's you and the Lord is drawing you to himself, I want to give you the opportunity To place your faith in Jesus. You can do that now just by praying a prayer like this. God I thank you that you love me. And I thank you that you sent your son. Your one and only son. To come and live the perfect life I could never live. And to die the death I deserve to die. Jesus I believe. That you died in my place. And I know that you can cover me with your perfect righteousness. I invite you to do that now. And I want to live for you all the days of my life. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.